Hey, everybody. This is Evan Wickham. Welcome to the Park Hill Church podcast. I'm here with Josh Ryan Butler. How are you, Josh? Good to see you, Evan. Great to see you all. Yeah. Well, to see you, I guess, and great to be with you all again. Yeah. And Josh, you just preached on um, the controversial topic of hell at Park Hill Church. For Halloween. Not for For Halloween. Halloween, Halloween, but just happened to coincide. (laughs) That's funny. But you did a great job. And as promised, you have delivered on your promise to meet with me over Zoom and record a conversation responding to questions that came out of our community uh, after your incredible teaching. And so if you haven't heard Josh's teaching, yeah, if you haven't heard Josh's teaching and you're listening to this, watching this, go, go back, listen and watch. And, and then, and then tune into this because our, our community came up with some good ones, Josh, you've seen some of these questions. I gotta say, man, I saw the questions, you know, some of the questions came in and such good ones. You such an insightful crew and I'm excited. Yeah. There's only so much you can get into in 45 minutes or whatever. And so getting a chance yep. to dig in, it's good to be asking good deep questions about this. So it's awesome. Yeah. I love the idea of church as synagogue. You know, it's a place where uh, community life is shared and the conversations, the most important ones we can have, they keep going. And so this, this one, let's jump right in. We won't say any names. There's, uh, we'll keep people anonymous, but this individual asks, you know, and this will sum up several questions in one, is there torture? So like, (laughs) is there torture in hell? Hell is a horrible thing to think about. It, it, it's supposed to be, uh, but it, but there's certain ways of thinking about it that feel more horrible. And one of those ways involves like pain. Is there pain inflicted on those who choose not to follow God and are cast outside God's new heaven and earth? Um, I know it's a weird place to start. It's pretty dark, yeah, but that's a great, that's uh, an important question. question. Yeah. Well, dude, I think it's a very important question. So a couple of thoughts. One is, um, so I hold to a view that is technically called eternal conscious torment. And this is the dominant view throughout church history by and large, you know? Uh, and so I do believe there's torment, right? But, uh, uh, in it, eternal meaning, Hey, it goes on for, It's final and, and forever, uh, conscious meaning you're not a, dead, annihilated, asleep in the grave, whatever, but you're actually conscious. Um, the torment part, this is a part where I do think though there's some big misconceptions at times about what this means. And one of the ways I like to distinguish is going, uh, distinguishing between torment versus torture is, is two different things, right? So uh, if you think about- Torment versus torture? Yeah, it's, it's a kind of contrasting how we might understand torment in comparison to torture. So uh, torture, I think is kind of from the outside in, you know? So you can kind of think of like, man, if someone's hitting me over the head with a baseball bat or a two by four, you know, like they're torturing me, boom, boom, boom. It's hitting me. It's this pain that's inflicted from the outside in. Uh, whereas torture, I'm sorry, torture, you know, from the outside in, Whereas torment is often there's more as uh, a pain that arises from the inside out. If I have a headache, for example, oh man, this headache mm. is tormenting me uh, from the inside out. Now, both are painful experiences, but they're painful in some pretty different ways. There's a difference between someone bashing you over the head with two by four versus, you know, having a headache or whatever, right? And I would suggest to you that torment as, uh, you know, a healthy historical understanding and what we see in the biblical text is more of the latter than the former right? More of the inside out. Um, uh, and here, here's what I mean by that. One of the key passages where um, the word torment is used is in the passage of Lazarus and the rich man, 
right? And so in my book, The Skeletons of God's Closet, there's a whole chapter on Lazarus and the Rich Man diving in deep. I've heard a lot of folks say that's like their favorite chapter in the book. So you can go a lot deeper if you want in that whole chapter there. Uh, but one of the points I draw out is like the, in, in the Greek, the word for um, agony, he talks about being in agony in kind of the, in the, in, in the fire, right? In Hades. And uh, that word agony, it shows up in two other places in the New Testament, and both are referring to an emotional anguish that arises from the inside out rather than a physical mm. torture from the outside in, right? So um, mm. if we go to that one place, it's when, if you remember, uh, Jesus and uh, his parents kind of forget him at the temple. So or they don't forget him, but they, they realize, oh my gosh, 12-year-old Jesus isn't with us. And they go back searching for him, and they are in agony. The word is odunami. They're in odunami because someone that they love has been lost, they realize. And so they're in odunami, they're in agony. Uh, similarly related, uh, another one is um, where Paul is with the elders at Ephesus and Acts, and they're realizing they're probably never going to see him again. He's probably going to his death. It's that they were filled with odunami, with agony, because someone that they love is about to be lost. And so we see in both of these, mm. Paul and Mary and Joseph are all in agony. They're all in odunami, not because they're getting beat up by muggers or hit over the head with two by fours, um, but they're in agony, they're in anguish, they're in torment, you could say, because someone or something they love has been taken away or is being taken mm -hmm. away, it's gone. As just similarly in Lazarus and the rich man, part of what's happening there is that the rich man who, he, it's like he no longer is even identified by his name. Lazarus is given a name. La the rich man, all he's identified now is his greed has come to consume him, to define him as idols. The riches that he refused to share with the poor uh, have now defined his identity. And he is in anguish. He is in agony. He is in, in torment. He is in odunomai because yeah, yeah. loves his riches have been taken away. They've been burned up in the fire of God's judgment. Right. So uh, it's a picture of this guy who's invested his life in these idols and now they've been taken away from him. And yet his corrupted heart, his corrupted affections, his corrupted condition leaves him in agony. Now, the word torment is also used in that passage. It says while he was like in the torment and the word there is bosonos. And I think this is really interesting, kind of fascinating backdrop is uh, the word bosonos is literally the word for a touchstone that was used to test jewelry. So if you had like a piece of gold or let's say, right. And someone's going, Hey, here's some gold and go, well, Hey, are they trying to, uh, are they trying to uh, pull one over on me? You know, you would get out the bosonos, the touchstone, and you would put the gold under the torment. You would scrape it with the bosonos, the touchstone to see if it was authentic or if it was a fake. And if it was, a, mm. it would kind of crack under the bosonos, under the torment. Right. And so similarly, what's interesting in this passage is that the rich man has been depicted throughout. He's, he's like, um, the bigger context in Luke 16 surrounding this is Jesus is confronting the Pharisees going, you guys are wealthy. You look shiny and polished and pristine on the outside, but beware because your judgment day is coming and God knows your heart. I'm summarizing, you know, paraphrasing what he's mm -hmm. saying. You will look all polished and shiny and fancy, like a big fancy shiny jewel. But he says, you don't use your wealth to make friends with the poor. You don't, whatever, you know, and mm -hmm. God's judgment is coming. Then he launches into the story of the rich man and Lazarus where the rich man is really like a depiction of the Pharisees. And what we see is that the, the rich man, like the Pharisees, is now being put under the bosonos, under the touchstone, under the torment of God's judgment. And its purpose is to expose his true character, who he really is. Mm -hmm. so, I, I, so I would suggest to, you know, I would suggest that, um, that yes, it, it is torment, 
Uh, and God's active, like God actively judges. He calls out sin, he names and all that. Um, but it's a little more nuanced than God hitting someone over the head with the two by four. That makes sense, right? It's God exposing and judging our corrupted character. And the torment is arising because that which we've invested our lives in that's in opposition to God's kingdom has now been taken away. We no longer mm. have the idols anymore. And that's why, you know, I know there are a few other questions related to this that come, but what about like we right. being teeth language? And uh, if I can go there for a second, you know, like, yeah, I think I used to think, man, people are weeping and gnashing their teeth because angels are whipping them outside the city or something like that, you know? Right. I think you actually see as you're reading through the story, the biblical stories, you see a lot of expressions like this when someone who's lived in opposition against God has what they love taken away. So in Revelation, mm. you're going to get soon to God is burning down Babylon. He's taking down the empire and the kings and the merchants who grew wealthy off are crying out, whoa, whoa, oh Babylon, where all of our great wealth and all our riches, they're weeping, they're gnashing mm -hmm. their feet, they're in torment, like because that which they've invested their lives in is coming under the fire of God's judgment and being taken away. And mm -hmm. it's not sure they're not weeping and gnashing their teeth, crying out, whoa, whoa, because someone's torturing them. They're crying out because that which they've invested their lives in is now being taken away yeah. by the judgment of God. Uh, one last picture, I'll say, I'm blabbing a lot here, but I think also with the famous prodigal son That's story, good. where at the end of the prodigal son story, you have the older brother who has been, um, uh, you know, he, he's refusing to go in to the father's kingdom celebration for the long lost son who's come home. And he, he's asking dad, why are you throwing the big party for him? And I've been slaving away for you. And he's got this distance, this chasm in his heart from God. And the depiction that Jesus gives of the older brother is he's a prideful, self-righteous, whatever, who's clinging to his own works, like what that would, you know, trying to stand on his own two feet. He's refusing to enter the life and the light of the kingdom celebration for the product who's come home. And uh, he's in the darkness, weeping and gnashing his teeth over the mm. uh, reputation that he refused to share or to get, you know, and like, I think Jesus is yeah. giving up there. It's a picture of a self-righteous person in hell, you know, like in the darkness, weeping mm -hmm. and gnashing their teeth, refusing to come into the kingdom party because the, their corrupted heart and the father, you know, the father's posture towards him. He still calls him son, you know, but the, fa the father's not going to let that spoil the right. going on inside that ties into the next question and it's it's the idea of universalism mm -hmm. um you mentioned in your teaching you mentioned too that god will reconcile all things to himself and yet uh you still reject universalism so i want you to explain that this person felt that how do you even reconcile those two concepts why must god's patience run out and there be a finality to all things being reconciled Mm, great. Okay, so a couple of thoughts, a few for clarifications too. Um, yeah. I, was, I don't see God's reconciliation of all things and final judgment being, and the finality of judgment being contradictory. I actually think uh, they're in lockstep with each other, right? So maybe the analogy might be the way that Batman reconciles Gotham is by putting the Joker in prison, right? Like, like the way that peace is established and reconciliation is accomplished. And I think that all things are alluding to all creation. Mm and all of the, you know, like the, it, it's speaking to creational realities, right? And so the way I believe that Jesus reconciles all things is by dealing with evil properly and putting it in its place. Like, like we talked about something, protecting his kingdom by containing it. I think that's actually a part of the reconciliation. You think about the language of reconciliation, uh, it comes from even like the language of 
uh, accounting and books about, you know, and part of the accounting is like sorting out, oh, the negatives go over here, you know, and the other positives go over here. Like you're, you're putting things in their appropriate places to give an accounting to, to reconcile the books, you could say, you know? And so yeah. I think dealing with evil by judging evil, by punishing evil, by containing evil, and by not allowing it to anymore invade is like a part of the reconciling of all things. Um, I think the, uh, the, the question about like, um, but it's really a good question. I, I, it'll a lot of people struggle with that. And I think actually to, to clarify something that I said Sunday, uh, when I spoke about God as being patient, but God's patience will run out, uh, the context there was actually within history, right? That right now mm. God is being patient with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. God has been mm. patient with the genocides of the 20th century. You know, like God is being patient with, um, and, and sometimes God's more patient than I want him to be. You know, I think of people I counsel in my church who have endured horrific things. And, and, and what I find like the cry of the biblical story is not, it's not, hey God, if you're good, why would you ever intervene? Like the cry of the biblical story is the opposite. It's like, God, because you are good, why do you wait so long? Like how long, mm -hmm. how long the, re, the refrain throughout so much of scripture, like how long, oh Lord, until you come to avenge and redeem and establish your justice and all these things. It's like the cry of the biblical story is not like, God, if you're good, why do you come and judge? You know, it's like, man, God, you're being too patient. <laughs> why are you, how long? Oh, yeah. yeah. You come and, and so, uh, and so when I was speaking to the patience of God, I was speaking to, man, God, I believe is way more patient at times than we want him to be with the brutality of our history. Yeah. And yet that yeah. doesn't last forever. Like there is a reckoning that's coming. There is a judgment that is coming. Yeah. Our world needs I, am, that. I almost feel like establish. Yeah. I, I almost feel like the, the, I, I want to say this fairly, the concerns about God's judgment. It's largely an affluent Western cultural concern. <laughs> like yeah. the Bible. I mean, would you agree? The Bible was written by the underclass and the oppressed and the people under the boot of empire and their longing for, judgment they're longing for for god to deliver and so it's like god come and judge bring your wrath on the oppressor that just turned down my mom's house and because we're on the top side we're on the kind of the benefactor western ones we're like man judgment seems a little a little insensitive doesn't it um you know for most of american history black bodies being enslaved and saying swing low sweet chariot come do your thing the historic black church doesn't have the qualms with God's judgment. Maybe that the affluent white church has. Yeah. And what do you, yeah. Yeah. Well, and from that perspective too, like within the biblical story, like God's judgment is presented as good news. You know, it's like, dude, it's needed. Yeah. It's not good news for those who are doing evil and repentant and stubborn or whatever, you know, but it's, it's not like this, uh Oh, here you come. You know, it's like, come Lord Jesus, come, you know, and, and uh, yeah. maybe to add a layer to what I said earlier about, you know, God's just being a surprise. Uh, what I mean by that is like the surprise is in the outcome, like kind of the who's in and who's out. Just, I think it's premature for us to make final judgments ourselves, right? And Jesus actually warns against that in the gospels, like making mm. these, mm. right? Um, we don't know the particularities of this person's in and this person's out, but what we do know, what's not a surprise is we do know who the judge is, right? We know that it's Jesus. And we know the character of uh, what, what characterizes those who are in and those who are out. What characterizes those who are in 
are those who are united with Christ, you know, of experiencing like his salvation as being united with Jesus and part of his kingdom under his reign and united with him as spirit, you know, and what characterizes being outside of the kingdom is uh, opposition against God and his ways and the hardened heart that says, God, I want my way over your way. I want uh, to be Lord of my own life rather than to submit my life to you as Lord. I want to stand on my own two feet rather than to receive your grace. You know, like I want independence rather than. Yeah. And so, um, so what's very clear is who the judge is and what's very clear is what salvation means and what it means to be outside of that. Um, you know, I, I think it's premature for us to kind of go, Hey, I know this person in particular is in, or this person is out like that, that Jesus seems to confront that with a lot of like, there's gonna be a lot of shock and awe, you know, like surprise in the outcome. Yeah. But, um, but we can take confidence knowing who the judge is. I trust Jesus to actually bring good judgment to establish his peaceful and righteous kingdom on earth. And, uh, and I trust him better. Than I trust myself to sort out who is actually of him, and who is not, you know? Yeah, it's so good, Josh. There's this question here that came in. Yeah, so Josh broke down views of hell and ended with essentially a fourth option, marry me or go your own way. Great. And so uh, this person felt that was a bit abstract, considering there are millions upon millions of people who will never follow Jesus. What will become of them when the end comes and they go their own way? Uh, is there like a mystery component that we just need to kind of be satisfied with? Or... Or what's the result of going your own way? Uh, the metaphoric, much worse flames of hell or something else entirely? Um, and this connects to a bunch of other questions. You know, what happens outside the city? And yeah. when people are outside the city forever, are they, are they just getting worse and worse? And are, are heavenly people cognizant of that? Um, you know, it's just when you actually try to think ontologically <laughs> about yeah. the, eternal, the eternal nature of a good place and a bad place, both existing forever. Excellent. Well, cool. That's one angle to approach it is kind of going like, um, so the merry or go your own way. I, I would say, you know, in a 40 minute sermon, 45 hour, we didn't have time to get into some of the nuance here. And, and I would say often this relates to questions like um, God's wrath or punishment, you know, because uh, what going your own way can sound like is very passive. Like God's kind of going, Hey, go your own way to your own thing. And I do think that's a part of that's one side of the coin, but there's also more to it that God is active in, in this as well. And so one thing that's been helpful for me is to have a helpful, I'd say kind of a historic Christian understanding of God's wrath as both active and passive at the same time. Right. So I think some people, the caricature is like, dude, sometimes God's doing active wrath. He's burning down a city or something. Sometimes it's passive. He's just kind of handing you over to do whatever you want. And I think actually the historic understanding is much more, it's both the end simultaneously all the time. And maybe an analogy for this that I think would be helpful is, um, I talk about this in my other book, The Pursuing God, but I had this one guy tell me once, you know, imagine you're this fish and you decide you don't like living in the water anymore. And so you're going to jump out of the water up on the dock. And after a while, the dock gets uncomfortable and you're flopping around and, you know, uh, and pretty soon you're like, ah, you're in torment or something up on the dock. Now, is that a consequence of the fish's action or is that a punishment, you know? Uh, and he was going, it's, it's a consequence, not a punishment. A punishment would be somebody walks down the pier with a stick and starts beating on the fish. Like that would be a punishment. But the fish is just receiving a consequence of its own action. And his point was kind of, he was trying to confront me a bit by saying like, hell, it's just passive. It's just a consequence. Like people are being handed over like that fish jumping out of the dock. God's going, okay, you want to jump out of the dock? I'll let you jump out of the dock. But God's not actually actively doing anything. That would be like the guy walking down the pier with a stick. And my pushback on him was going, 
um, dude, your, your picture here breaks down, right? Like, because, um, I would suggest to you the fish jumping out onto the dock is both a consequence and a punishment in the biblical vision. When we come to God's wrath, God's nature, right? Because when we're talking about God, like we're talking about the one who is sustaining the water and upholding the dock and keeping the fish breathing in its position, you know, like, and so God has ordained creation, the structure of the world, the nature of reality. God has ordained things such that the fish thrives in the water and flops around on the dock. Right. And so the picture there is going, when we we're the fish in this picture, right? So when we rebel against our created purpose, when we go outside of God's vision uh, for life, when we, and when God hands us over to let, all right, you want to jump out of the dock, go ahead, jump out of the dock. Like on the one hand, you could say God is handing us over. It's kind of passive language. God is letting us do what we want. But on another angle, God is sustaining us in that condition. He is executing his ordained judgment of this is what things look like when you go against the grain of the universe. So you don't need the guy walking out mm-hmm. of your in order for that to be a punishment, in order for that to be wrath. And so I, I believe that like from one angle, this kind of marry me or go your own way, from one angle, it's the passive angle is like God's giving us what we want. From yeah. the active angle, though, God is executing the punishment he's ordained within the structure of creation of like, this is, it's not some extra thing. It is, is the thing. <laughs> like, like, this is what happens is you unravel in your distance from God. So, so practically, I was just going, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? He helped me with some, some hooks for it. Um, and this is where I think we really have to go to the realm more of, uh, the Bible works more in metaphor than concrete, like the analogy with heaven mm-hmm. and earth, like new heavens, new earth, we could ask questions like, will there be dinosaurs? Will my pet dog Ralphie come back? You know, like, like, like maybe, I don't know, you know, like the Bible actually avoids giving a lot of the explicit <laughs> map and territory. And it doesn't answer all our questions about the new heavens and the new earth. And so similarly, it tends to work more with metaphor than with uh, a concrete um, video camera footage of what the, you know, what it's all going to look like. But I do think if imagination, you know, so the key metaphors in the Bible would be fire, darkness, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And uh, we already talked about weeping and gnashing of teeth, but I think, Fire speaks to, um, you know, fire consumes, it burns things down, it doesn't build them back up. And I think there's a picture there of the destructive power of sin, the right. reality of God's judgment, taking away our idols, that kind of thing. Um, darkness speaks to absence, you know, the absence of light. If God himself is light, if light is the foundation of creation. Um, on one hand, you can't literally have darkness and fire together because fire is green light and then it's no longer dark, you know, like, but right, uh, right. metaphorically, the darkness speaks to absence from the God who is light and the light of creation. And the weeping and gnashing of teeth, as we saw, speaks to loss, like grieving that which has been taken away. And so I think these metaphors are speaking to something real. You know, they're speaking to mm. the consuming power of sin. They're speaking to absence from the presence of God. They're speaking to grief over the uh, of that which you invested your life in. that has been taken away by yeah. God's judgment. Those are all real. Yeah. Practically was like, I, you know, somewhere I think of this is fascinating is the post-apocalyptic genre has become so yeah. huge over the last two decades or anything. So like the Cormac McCarthy-esque like wasteland, it feels like we've actually become kind of fascinated over the last decade or two in culture going, what does the aftermath of judgment without new creation, you know, like of being handed over to our own devices and sort of the frail wasteland. It's not quite yet the nothingness. There's still life there, but it's distant from life. And I'm not yeah. literally what hell is like, 
But I do think that's the kind of imaginative work that helps maybe uh, let our run a bit. You know, if, if that makes sense. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We seem fascinated. Yeah, that's how that genre is trying to explore. Like, what's the aftermath of a judgment without the new life that follows on the other side? Our family watched Napoleon Dynamite again. And the other picture I think is humorous <laughs> is I think of Uncle Rico, right? And like, you remember Uncle Rico? And like, dude, he's oh, yeah. even in the past, you know, like he's, if I had just like scored that, if the coach had put me in, if I'd scored the touchdown, if I hadn't gotten that knee injury, if I, you know, like he's still stuck in the old world. And now it's decades later and he's still, he's still living under the old order of things. His heart is obsessed with his idol. He can't let it go, you know? And you look at it, and you just kind of go, that's pathetic, you know? Like, like there's mm. a patheticness to it from the outside looking in, but from the inside looking out, like that's what he wants. He wants to hold on to his idol, you know? And and mm. it mm. Kind of corrupted his character and distorted him in a way. And I think whether Uncle Rico or Cormac McCarthy are both given us like, yeah, of being handed over to yeah, yeah. Because I think the hard part people have with that idea is like who would really stay in that mode yes really it's like on one hand we go who would really stay in that mode if they see god truly wouldn't they want him uh and and on the on the god side we think and why would god let them stay in that mode why wouldn't he show them exactly what they need to see Mm. in order in order to change like that's like the like when we try to deconstruct hell, I feel like that's the impetus. Like I would be more compassionate than God, and no one's really that sinful, are they? Yeah, you know, that's and that, you know? I think that statement you made. No one's really that sinful, are they? You know, and yes, they are. Yes, we are. You know, like, and that's where I think yeah. the, the crux, the the presupposition underneath it is thinking we're not actually that bad. And I and I would say, man, the reality of this is where doctrines like depravity things come in, but. Um, the reality is, uh, I would say we, we are that bad. So a, a couple of resources here. I do think, um, you know, C.S. Lewis is the great divorce, sort of the classic. He, it's entirely an exploration of why would someone stay in hell when heaven is on offer, you know? And it's such it's a good book. Psychology of hell, you know, and you're exploring it going, oh my gosh. And you start to realize, man, that's, yeah, that, that we really are like that, you know? Um, but there's another piece to it too that I think, I think we assume another presupposition, I think underneath that at times is like, um, th- this is another question that came in that relates to this. Like, why won't people change their mind? You know, like right. the New Jerusalem or wide open yet i believe god's judgment is final he calls out and if you're you know if he, he if you're out you're you're out you know god has said that that's not going to change so what why why wouldn't people like kind of change their minds so to speak and sorry my phone is dinging but um but the uh <laughs> but the uh the presupposition i think underneath that is going like um what it means to enter the kingdom is to die to yourself and live unto God and be united with Christ, right? And so the analogy I think might be something like, um, dude, if I've got my kids and if one of my kids is saying like, daddy, I hate you, I hate you, I think you're horrible, whatever, you know, so like, I'm not saying they say that, but just like, whatever. Like, if everyone yeah. is, I hate you. Um, but then I brought the ice cream out on the table and they're like, daddy, I love you. You're the best dad ever. 
know, like, and saying all the things that, that, you know, they think I want to hear. And it's like, okay, you really want me? Or it's just now the ice cream's on the table. You want the goodies you think you can get, you know? And I think often behind the scenes in that question, it's like, if I'm living this life today, and even like the idea of like, well, maybe on my deathbed, I'll follow God. You know, like what that assumes is that I don't actually want God. I don't actually find him desirable. But if the assumption is, well, hey, when I see the goodies of the kingdom, then, ah, I love you. I love you, God. I want the ice cream. You know, like, is that actually that you want God or is it just that you want the benefits and the goodies that could come from God? And I think the assumption behind that question for many people is, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're, what we're really kind of thinking, if we go like the surface is, if they really just saw the goodies, they'd want to be nice to God too. And I think the underlying problem is like, it's not about the question of whether or not they want the goodies. It's a question of whether or not they want God, you know? And, and that I think is like the root, which God's judgment is dealing with. It's the creation rejecting their creator and yeah. actually only want the creator. If you could get some of the goodies of creation back with them is not actually dealing with the deeper level of corruption in the human heart. Yeah. But the beauty of the gospel again is Jesus going, He's not asking, hey, are you good enough to get in? He's asking, will you let me heal you? Will you let me heal you of that deeper level of corruption in the heart that has brought you to the place of not wanting your creator? Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate you um, balancing both the passive. It's the passive consequence of our sin, and it's it's God actively involved in some way. That's the part, I, I confess, that's the part for me. It's difficult to to see both, but then you get into models of providence. You know, God being, you know, both transcendent and imminent, both completely other than creation outside of time, seeing the whole scope of time and every decision that will be made within time, and being intimately imminent within time, calling everyone mm -hmm. to Himself in real time. Both. That's the only time I can like, oh, now I, <laughs> now I kind of see how both active and passive work together. Like mm. um, my real time consequences fall on my head like a headache. Mm. And if, if the church for 2000 years and Jewish history before that is right, that God is totally transcendent outside of time, then absolutely God uh, is initiating history. Mm. Um, which, which makes my brain blow up a little bit. So I guess. Not totally. Well, <laughs> I, and I think the crux, I, yeah, totally. Is this, uh, I, I think the crux of our challenge with that question is that recognize, we've got to start just recognizing God's agency works different than ours, you know, like, uh, mm. yeah, the, I think one of the challenges in, well, has got active or passive. It's like, we're tending to think of him like another human on the field. One, one friend of mine put it at like, mm. it's almost like a soccer game. And we're kicking the ball, and then we see God as like one more player on the field. Sometimes God kicks the ball, sometimes he gets out of the way and lets us kick the ball, but he's like one more player on the field. And yet in the biblical vision, God is not like so much like another player on the field outside of the incarnation, but God is more like the field of play itself, you know? Not pantheism, yeah. or just going like God is the active sustainer of all creation who's putting breath in our lungs to be able to do the very actions that we're doing and holding us together. And so in everything we do, God is the prior upholding cause. And, you know, like uh, in the sense yeah. of going, you're all reliant and dependent upon his prior agency in our lives in order for us to actually be here 
talking right now, you know, to have anything that we're doing, which just means that God's not like one more dude on the field. God's actually a different kind of agent as the creator upholding <laughs> working and in his creation than, than we are. So which, wild. Like, mind blow up. It's like, whoa, all right. It's beautiful. And, yeah. and he became Jewish flesh. He became Jesus. He became human, the God man. Um, totally. He, yeah, he, he, he did become a player on the field. Um, so finally, I know we're devolving into speculative maybe, but it's also not speculative if you're a Roman Catholic. Any thoughts on purgatory? Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, uh, not great. Purgatory is great. But um, no, I, so I don't believe in purgatory, you know, and I think, um, I think the question here uh, is I understand it. And I have to confess, this is an area that I've dove in deeply into. into well, really it. quick, let me, let me set it up a little bit. So I was, in a Zoom, I was in a Zoom chat with Ronald Rollheiser, who's a Catholic mystic, yeah. and he, he was explaining purgatory. He's like, there's no biblical basis for purgatory, yeah. but I, as a Roman Catholic, believe in it. Yeah. Why do you ask? Because it's, it's the logical, philosophical outflow of the idea of layers to judgment. So like, um, think of, think of the, and he said, think of the Christian leader who lied to his wife all marriage long about his sexual secrets that were outside of his marriage covenant. Um, and yet he felt torn the whole time and he lived a lie for like 48 years. And then, dies in faith believing jesus is god and lord and crucified risen savior and will judge him (laughs) so 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 at that point does he just go to heaven like the rest of us and as a good roman catholic ronald rollheiser says absolutely not yes why that tension answer purgatory (laughs) so this thing is like his his thing is like uh, everyone in purgatory ends up in heaven. That's Roman Catholic theology. Everyone in purgatory ends up in heaven, but the lying, cheating, son of a gun, Christian dude who just abused a lot of people, um, can't just, can't just go to heaven the same way as, as mother Teresa or whatever. So, um, that's, that's kind of the setup. What do you think of, what do you think of that? Layers, layers to judgment, layers to heaven, layers to hell. Yeah. So the way that I, here's what I think is kind of the question beneath the question. So what both kind of a a, a traditional like Protestant or I'm reformed, you know, reformed or Lutheran versus a Roman Catholic view, you know, um, all believe in a purging, right? Like the root of the word purgatory purge, right? So I'll believe that there's a purging of sin related to the new heavens and new earth, like eschatological kingdom, resurrection body, all that. I think the core question is, is it an event or a process, right? And the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is saying it's a process, kind of for some of the reasons you're outlining there, you know, like it just doesn't seem right or fair that this dude who had these secrets and whatever, that he just kind of goes waltzing into the kingdom. But I would say, you know, my, my pushback would be like, well, A, like we've all got those things, right? Like it's short of kingdom come, our sanctification is an ongoing process. And there's going to be some layers of things in our lives that are not fully there. And yet B, I would say what, um, it seems to me that the New Testament emphasis is more the sanctification and gradual purging and growth and holiness and growth of Christ like is occurring 
in history right now on this side of eternity, on this side of kingdom come. And what happens at the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead, the great white throne of final judgment and the entrance into the kingdom is finally the sanctification, like what it's been pointing towards this whole time will now be realized through the sovereign action of God, through the immediacy of like our union with Christ in the spirit, our resurrection body, no longer First Corinthians 15 layers, no longer the corruptible, but now the incorruptible, no longer the natural, but now the spiritual, no longer the, like there, that our um, <coughs> desires that, and our uh, inclinations and our habits and our lives and all these different things that are right now, there's a sanctification process at work. I believe when we reach kingdom come, like it's like the finish line of the marathon. It's not <coughs> on for one more leg of the race. That makes sense. Right? <laughs> like it's actually um, that I believe the purging, if you will, uh, or the glorification is an event rather than a process. And I think the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is essentially setting up one more leg of the marathon after that, you know, like a, a process. Right. Whereas because of, I think the way that I understand the resurrection body and the spirit and justification and all the way all that's happening, like I would see it more as uh, the great white throne judgment and the kingdom, it, that is the finish line. That is the event where the sanctification process is made complete through union with Christ and the spirit and the kingdom of the father then and there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's helpful. The event versus process purgation. I've never heard it put that way. That's, I mean, I mean, the scriptures speak of the event of the white throne. That makes sense. Yeah. That's great. Trademark. Yeah. Well, well, Josh, I mean, there's so many, there's so many other questions on this list and there are versions of similar questions and totally unique questions. And I wish we could get to all of them, but I want to honor your time. Thank you, Josh, for giving so much of your heart your words, your wisdom, and your presence to our community this week, last weekend, and today on this podcast. Um, so, yeah, just thank you, Josh. You're a great friend. <laughs> Thanks, Evan. It's always good to see you. Yeah. I love you. love getting to be with the Park Hill crew and, yeah, being with you guys. Awesome. Sounds wonderful. All right. Oh, my gosh. So thankful for you. Glad you were here. Park Hill Church, thank you for listening to this uh, Josh Butler Q&A on the topic of hell and judgment. I know tons of questions probably are even being raised out of these answers. So feel free to continue to email them to the pastoral team. We'd love to meet with you and talk with you about this all important topic of God being the just judge through Jesus, being the just judge that actually humanity longs for. So anyways, have an amazing week. Grace and peace.